Welcome to Living in Time, an interview program about the big questions we ask ourselves in life. Who are we? From where have we come? What then shall we do? Living in Time is broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM and available online wherever you listen to podcasts. My name is Noah Sviven. I study history here at Stanford, and I think a lot about the passage of time and what it means for each of us to live in time. Over the course of the life of this program, I hope to interview luminaries from different walks of life to ask them about their life's work and the journey that brought them to it. Many of our guests will be members of the Stanford faculty. Some will be religious leaders. Some will be people who I've not yet had the chance to meet. Today's guest, though, is an old friend. Dana Lamon has been a mentor and friend of mine since my first year of high school. He coached and advised me in speech and essay contests, and I convinced him to run for the California State Senate in 2020. He placed third in the field of five candidates, so he did not go on to the general election. And the truth is that his loss drained me of a naive interest in electoral politics. I still believe in the importance of contributing to our rather fragile democratic project, but I don't think winning is as simple as putting forward an excellent candidate, not anymore. Dana Lamont studied math at Yale, where he was the first blind undergraduate student. He went to law school at the University of Southern California, and from 1981 until 2010, he worked as an administrative law judge for the California Department of Social Services. In 1992, he won the Toastmasters International World Championship of Public Speaking. And when you hear his voice, you'll understand why. He is a father to four children, a teacher to many, and among the kindest, wisest people I have had the chance to know and love. Dana, welcome to the program. Noah, thank you very much. I enjoy the opportunity to share with your audience in this podcast. Well, Dana, why don't we get started by talking about um, Toastmasters and what the organization is and the World Championship of Public Speaking? I joined Toastmasters in 1988, and it was a, a very interesting uh, situation and in the reason that I joined. Uh, actually, I was asked by a friend to give a humorous speech at his wedding, and I lost sleep over that. I had been giving speeches over the years in churches and schools, uh, but to give a humorous speech at a wedding, that was new for me. Uh, I did that, uh, and I did it successfully. I mean, the, the audience laughed, so I'm assuming I did it su successfully. And a friend then recommended that I join Toastmasters, and that was my first uh, knowledge of what Toastmasters was about. It's an international organization that uh, helps adults uh, improve their communication skills. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to learn how to put humor in speeches. I joined the organization. And shortly after joining, I had the opportunity to watch one of their speech contests. One of our club members was in the contest. And when I saw that competition, I, I committed to being there, to one day being in the world championship. And it happened within four years. I had the opportunity to participate and win uh, Toastmasters World Championship. Now, why don't you tell us about the title of your speech, the winning speech? Well, my speech was titled, Take a Chance. And as I developed the speech uh, that summer, the contest was in August, and uh, I was working on it over the summer, I made note of where the contest would be. It would be in Las Vegas. And I thought about what people do when they go to Las Vegas. Their goal, very often, is to try to win a jackpot from a machine or from a table game. And I wondered, why is it that we put so much attention 
on winning a monetary jackpot, and we don't put that much attention on winning the jackpot that could come from within ourselves, the, the richness, the wealth that is within us. And so I did a speech about how fear, comfort, and indifference stops us from taking a chance on ourselves. I think um, your, your, your choice of a, of a title so fitting for Las Vegas speaks to the importance of delivering a speech that is oriented for the particular audience and taking into account the venue, the place. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about how you would describe the purpose of public speaking. And as an author of four books, the ways in which that differs from um, the written text. The purpose of the public speaking is to share ideas and emotions. What separates us as individuals is our unique set of thoughts and feelings. And when we have the skill to uh, share uh, those thoughts and feelings, then people can really get to know uh, who we are. And, and those thoughts and ideas uh, that we share actually advances uh, our progress within the universe. So the communication skill is extremely important. Uh, otherwise, ideas and thoughts and feelings will come to you. And if you don't know how to share them, they stay with you and you only, and the many people in the universe today, we're talking about 8 billion uh, on this earth. I'm not going to say in the universe because I, I, I don't know what's beyond, uh, but on this earth, there's 8 billion people, and they would lose out if you don't share your ideas and share it effectively. So as you point out, uh, it's important to know who your audience is. Uh, and it's also important to know what you want the audience to do with your message. Uh, and that's extremely uh, uh, significant for me as I prepare a speech. Uh, you should know that I, I don't write speeches. I, I start with what's the message? What message do I want to communicate? And I try to do that in one uh, concise sentence, Break to condense that message into one concise sentence. That's the message I want to communicate. And then the next question I ask myself is, what do I want the audience to do with this message? And once I have those two things in mind, what's the message and what I want the audience to do with it, then I know how to put that speech together. What points do I want to make? What, what are the bricks that build uh, that message? And uh, what will inspire the audience to take it with them? So, and, and that usually involves what stories do you want to include? because the audience is more likely to remember the story that you tell rather than the facts and the figures that you give. You know, getting to work with you on the speeches I delivered in high school, it taught me so many lessons about ideas and the way we share them. Something that was really important for me, a transformative moment came, I think, early in our uh, relationship together, when I realized that instead of thinking of the speech and essay contests as contests, the point of which was to win, I could think about them as opportunities to tell people something that mattered to me and that I thought might be a value for them. And Absolutely. I, it, it just so happened, right, that switching my orientation in, in that way resulted in 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 higher quality speeches and sometimes that meant you know winning a contest and but it didn't always mean winning because you know that can be elusive and complicated and um any, i mean anyway I, 
and and winning is subjective to the audience um, excuse me to the judges that the organization chooses and sometimes they don't do a very good job of choosing judges uh, that would would be able to analyze your presentation in terms of oral communication uh, and that's why i say let's not focus on winning Let's focus on delivering a message. And if you do that effectively, then it is all worth your being up there doing it. Even if you don't get first place, second or third place, it's still a meaningful moment to be up there and sharing that message with the audience. You talk a lot about meaningfulness and your latest book, right, is called Making the Moment Meaningful. Um you went through a pretty significant ordeal over these last few months. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I'd be happy to to share that because uh, I'm happy to be here to share that. Uh, in the summer, uh, actually a little bit before summer began, back in uh, late May, uh, I was hospitalized. Uh, I was having... Uh, problems with digestion and and I end up uh, with with vomiting so violently that I ruptured my esophagus and I was hospitalized and uh, during that hospitalization uh, I went through an ordeal that that meant 10 days of of being in a coma uh, and at one point my heart stopping, uh, the doctors declaring that that I was dead. It, it, it was over for me. Uh, and uh, obviously, they were wrong in, in that uh, prognosis. Uh, but but many people believed them and and thought it was true. Uh, and uh, fortunately, uh, I had a uh, Erica in my life. And Erica was one of those persons who who happened to to hear many of my speeches. Uh, she had a chance to read my books as well, but but she traveled with me uh, to Malaysia and uh, had an opportunity to to hear my speeches in Malaysia, Canada, several states. She would hear me speak, and she said, "No, this is not the guy who gives up. You got to give him give him more time. He's going to come back." Uh, and and indeed, I came back. Uh, and and there were so many people who I found were real friends. They were there at the hospital uh, to see, you know, Dana. Is Dana coming back? Uh, we want Dana to come back, including you, Noah. And so you can share if you would. Um, what prompted you to? to drop everything that you were doing and come down uh, to the hospital to be with me. We, I mean, I, I feel devoted to you. Um, I, I had visited you the month, I, the week before, actually, the month before and the week before, um, because I wanted to introduce my friends here at Stanford to, you know, my loved ones back home. And... Um, I, I mean, I, I would even tell them, you know, I want, I want you to meet my loved ones before they evaporate, which is totally dramatic, but, um, it, it encapsulates how I felt, um, following the death of my, my grandmother in December and, um, this course I put together called from dust to dust, living, dying and being mortal, which was, um, a medley of texts and works of art dealing with, um, mortality. So that was a kind of preparation for the really difficult news that came in a phone call from Erica um, uh, the, the, on, on Sunday, right? You had gone in early Saturday morning, late Friday night. Um, and so it was Sunday when she called and said that you were in the hospital and that the situation was really bad. So I went to the airport and, and, and flew down. You know, it's a great luxury of right being near San Jose airport when there's Southwest flights into Burbank. And anyway, so, um, I was with you and Erica, um, and your son for that first week, Sunday to Sunday. 
So when I came, you were in the coma, and when I left, you were in the coma. And I was in the, right, I was among the people who thought that you were on your way out. Um, so it's really, I mean, it's always special to talk to you, Dana, but it's extra special um, in, in light of everything that's happened. Um, yeah, and one of the things that I recognized during that that ordeal is how fragile life is. Now, I, I guess I had to have the personal experience to be reminded of that, although the idea of the fragility of life had come to me earlier uh, as an administrative judge. I had the responsibility and opportunity to to determine whether a person was disabled according to the the rules the social security rules dis, disabled to the point that you couldn't engage in substantial gainful activity and in doing so i read so many medical reports and saw so many descriptions of diseases that I'd never heard before. And I I was just confounded with all the things that could go wrong with the body. Uh, and I remember before I retired in, in 2010 of, of thinking, you know, life is really fragile. You, I mean, I would read reports of people who were just going through their routine day to day, going to work and and walking from their car across the parking lot, and they just fall out uh, and end up uh, later with a diagnosis of a disease that that doctors had never heard of before. I mean, they had to name the disease. Uh, and, and so life is so fragile that uh, we have to take advantage of the time that we have uh, and don't waste it. That's that's why I wrote Making the Moment Meaningful, because I felt that we were, we were doing too much wasting of time, even in our language when we talked about killing time. It's like, why would you want to do that? Time is so valuable, and, and we don't know when we're finished with it. I, I don't... <laughs> I, I actually, I had a religious group come to my door and they, they wanted to talk to me about the end of the world and how they're looking at the signs and the signs indicate that the, that the world is going to end soon. And I said, you know what, I don't concern myself with that because my world might end the next five minutes. Uh, so, uh, yeah, time, we just don't know how much time we have, we assume. I mean, uh, Noah, you're a young, youngster going to Stanford, and we can assume that you've got another 50 years. We could assume that, but we don't know that. Uh, and for me, I, I was accustomed to telling people, I'm going to be around till I'm 100. <laughs> and at 70, uh, I, I was on, on my way out. Thankfully, I have a second chance. To, to share a little bit more. I, I want to ask about how your view of, of death has changed since the experience, because I remember you telling me that you wanted to and, and did omit the word death from your wedding vows. Do you want to, do you want to can you talk a little bit about that? Um, I did. I, I didn't like the idea of, uh, you know, the typical phrase, till death do us part. I just didn't want that word in in my wedding vows. But beyond that, uh, I, I also wondered and discussed with uh, my my bride at the time, uh, wh why do we make a commitment uh, to stay with each other for life when when we know so little about what life has for us in the future. How do we know that we can stay with one person for life? I said, wouldn't it be better if we made a commitment like a contract for some specified period of time? And, and if it was good, we would renew. 
uh, and and she was okay with that, except that specified period of time was 70 years. Uh, so in my wedding vows, I committed to stay with her 70 years. Uh, I only made it to 30, uh, which which points out my my whole issue was that, you know, our lives had diverged so much that it was just appropriate that we go our separate ways, not in anger or or uh, ill will, but we saw that, you know, to to realize my dreams, to realize her dreams, for them both to happen, uh, we couldn't uh, stay for the seventy. Uh, I I will tell you that that when when I told her uh, that I would stay with her for seventy years. Uh, I, I had done the. I got married at age thirty, so I had done the calculation with the expectation I was going to be around at least a hundred, and uh, and and so during our marriage, sometimes I would say, uh, you know, watch yourself because I only have fifty four more years to go. You know, <laughs> I would I would say things like that, and she said, "Who's going to want you when you're a hundred? And I said, oh, I'll, I'll find some 18-year-old who will want me when I'm 100. So, uh, but we we would joke about it. Uh, and, but yes, I, I wanted to keep the word death out. Uh, I realized that it's going to happen. Uh, and, and I approached that willingly uh, in discussion that it's going to happen. And I, I, want to be prepared for it uh, in in the sense of, uh, in the legal sense. I want all of the paperwork uh, to be prepared, everything to be in order so that uh, whatever the, the final service is, is not a, a challenge for the, for the loved ones that I leave behind. Uh, so I do want to be prepared, and I think it's important to discuss uh, and realize that, you know, death will happen and not be afraid to talk about it. Yeah. And I, I, I think one of the big challenges in talking about dying and death is that it involves admitting our frailty and the fact that our powers don't, you know, go on endlessly. And when we live lives, right, of, that are characterized by... Um, I don't know, really, really going at it and 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 making the most of things in a, in a in a normal sense of achievement, right? That can give us a sense of power. It can give us a sense of being in control. But talking about our frailty and finitude means admitting that, you know, we're gonna want run out of runway one day. We we are gonna run out of runway, but but that doesn't mean we shouldn't accelerate to to go in flight to to give it all that we can give it in order to maximize life uh, I, I i just thought about this while you were making your statement and i don't know uh I, i'm gonna try to make it uh relevant to the point but but uh, uh recently uh erica and a friend went to a buffet uh in las vegas we had made a, a quick little vacation uh, that was kind of my celebration that I'm back is let me let me go to Vegas for a couple of days and play Kino. And uh, and, and Erica and a, a friend who was there with us uh, went to a buffet. And it was very important to the both of them because of the cost of the buffet. It was a pretty expensive one, uh, $90 for the buffet. Uh, and that they they eat as much as they could. <laughs> we got to get as much as we can because we paid a lot for this and we've got a limited time. They give you 90 minutes uh, and, and then you have to leave. So life is the same way. Uh, there's a buffet out there. There's plenty of things that we can do. We've been, we've been given plenty of talents uh, to utilize uh, as we interact with each other. And uh, in this particular case, we don't know how much time we're going to have, but we should live life in a way to maximize 
what we get from the time that we're here. That's what I uh, encourage people to do. But what do you think are good heuristics to use when you're choosing between, you know, good options? I mean, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs used to talk about how modernity has given us a maximum of choice and a minimum of meaning. And that's one way of looking at it. But I think the essential truth there is that there's this huge, the word marketplace comes to mind, of possibilities. And, right, how, how should we go about choosing between you know, various possibilities? And we should choose the possibilities based on uh, what I talk about in Making the Moment Meaningful, the Four Pillars. Uh, does it promote our growth? That's number one. Uh, number two, does it fulfill our purpose? Number three, does it nurture beneficial relationships? And number four, does it define us as we want to be defined? Uh, the, re uh, the rabbi was correct in what he said, because uh, with the many choices that we have today, it's about making money. People spend a lot of time with the idea of making money. Uh, there's one friend that I have. Uh, she's she's in past her mid seventies, uh, and I don't know if she'll ever come up with an idea uh, that is as useful to the general public. But she's always coming up with an idea. Uh, I wonder if we could create dot, dot, dot. But she usually finishes that idea with how much money she could make as a result of it. So she doesn't think in terms of just does this simplify life? Does this make life more enjoyable? Does this make life more meaningful? She's thinking, how much money can I make from it? And it's, that's what, you know, if we focus on what money we're going to make from it, uh, I, I'm going to tell you, uh, money is meaningless uh, when all is said and done. Uh, and you leave this earth, uh, how much money you left is, is going to be uh, something that people aren't going to talk about for very long. I mean, very quickly, they're going to forget it. Uh, they, if you leave it to them, very quickly, they're going to spend it. Uh, if you leave it to charity, oh, that might make the news that you left it to charity, and that's it. Uh, it, is, it is the impact that you have on people by sharing your thoughts and emotions that are, that's going to be more lasting uh, years and years after you're gone. I mean, my, my grandmother died in 1994, and even as recent as yesterday, I had conversation with Erica about something that my grandmother said. Uh, and uh, by the way, my grandmother left no money. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not sad about it. She left no money, no property. I'm not sad about that at all. Uh, I, I appreciate the stories that my grandmother shared with me. Dana, can you talk about people like your grandma who, who've made you who you are, who've helped you become who you are, the people who, right, who've been there at various moments across your life, who you think about as sources of, of encouragement and inspiration? My, my grandmother is one, but, you know, when that question is posed to me, uh, most immediately, there are three people I can tell you about. I mean, obviously, everybody that I've had a chance to interact with, they have some kind of impact. But the three people who are most significant in shaping Dana Lamont are Grace Elliott, Maud Riley, and Eddie Lamont. Grace Elliott was uh, a woman who 
founded the church that I grew up in. Trinity Chapel is the name of that church, still uh, in operation in Compton. And Grace, uh, we call her Sister Grace. Sister Grace required us to memorize verses from the Bible. Uh, every week, a different verse. She would type them out and put them, paste them on little construction paper so we can take them home with us and memorize them. And the one that stuck with me and meant so much, Philippians 4.13, says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was meaningful because I became blind at age four, and people, I, I heard a lot from others, he's blind, he can't. He's blind, he can't. I heard it throughout my life at all uh, stages of my life, but that verse was one key counter to that statement, he's blind, he can't. I can do all things. And so I adopted that attitude with everything. I mean, I can I can do it. I have that attitude. Uh, I will tell you, you know, uh, I've flown an airplane uh, with assistance, of course. Uh, but it's because I have this, I can do it as long as I find the, the right assistance or adaptive source, uh, I can do it. Thanks to Grace Elliott. Maud Riley uh, was a neighbor, and she instilled me my concept of excellence. Maud uh, would allow me to do stuff that other people wouldn't do. She, she didn't treat me as handicapped. She treated me as a handy person to have around. So I, I weeded flower beds, clipped rose bushes, wash dishes, painted. And every time Maud would give me a task to do, she would quote this poem. Uh, if a job is once begun, leave it not until it's done. Be the task great or small, do it well or not at all. And as a teenager, that instilled in me my concept of excellence. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it well. Uh, that came from Maud Riley. And then my mother, Eddie Lamont. Uh, and, and of course, she gave me a lot. Uh, you know, I uh, the first 18 years of my life before I went off to Yale, I was like every day just about with, with Eddie Lamont. But, but the conversation we had before I went to Yale... Uh, and in, in brief, that conversation was uh, that uh, she pointed out to me that my brothers and sisters and the kids in the neighborhood uh, wouldn't have the same opportunity that I had to go to a, an institution like Yale. And uh, she said, if when you come back with your Yale education, you are unable to communicate with your brothers and sisters and the kids in the neighborhood who didn't have the same opportunity, then your education would be worthless. Mm. So it became very important to me, no matter how much knowledge I gain, uh, no matter how much wisdom I develop, if I can't communicate it to the least of them, including kindergarten students, uh, then my education is worthless. And so I work very hard at making sure that I use the right language to communicate with people from whatever level they are accustomed to communicating. Dana, I, I want to tell you a story. I don't think I've told you this yet, but when you were in the hospital, in the coma, and we were coming into the ICU, right? The visiting hours were just 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And as the end visiting hours would come, um, I, I felt like there needed to be some kind of liturgical, <laughs> you know, moment uh, to mark the end. Okay. When we said goodbye. And we would often say Maud Riley's, you know, poem, 
If, if a task is first begun, leave it not until it's done. Be the task, great or small, do it well or not at all. And yes, yeah. saying those words in that space, I mean, it was, I mean, it's always been, I mean, it's ever since you told it to me, it's something I've, I've thought about, but I mean, it added so much meaning to say those words when you were in this extreme state um, and you were undergoing a great task and Erica was undergoing a great task in supporting you. And I mean, it's just um, the thought of making present this, this old neighbor um, in, in, in the hospital room by, by quoting her. I mean, I, 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 it's, it's really been moving to me. And it's not her poem. I don't know who wrote the poem. Uh, I, I actually heard a speech by Zig Ziglar, a well-known uh, speaker, uh, particularly uh, to sales forces. He, he would do lots of presentations on sales. But uh, I, I heard him mention it. His grandma used to quote the poem to him. And the, the significance of that of what you shared as well as what I shared about Maud Riley is one of the things that uh, you know I want to emphasize about the impact that we have uh, and we don't need large audiences we don't have to stand in a stadium that seats 17,000 to have major impact uh, Maud Riley probably never imagined that her quoting this poem to the teenage boy from around the corner would mean that people in Malaysia and Australia and Canada and 37 states of the United States would hear those words and benefit from from uh, my writing my book on excellence, my giving speeches on excellence, but even that very incident that you talk about, Maud Riley, I'm sure never imagined that one day the poem would be recited uh, as a as a a, a benediction. Well, I don't want to say benediction because it. it uh, as a as a way of 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 ending the visitation day uh, for someone who was in a coma in the hospital, uh, it's just amazing where one little thing we say, where it could end up, and how far it could travel, and how many people it would have impact on, and that's what life is about: is just doing one by one. The person that you have to interact with today, that's all you have to concern yourself with, and let that message travel through that person uh, around the globe, if that's what it's going to be. Yeah, that, that's something that's been helpful for me lately, trying to think, you know, okay, my, my mind might flutter away and 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 get a little anxious thinking about what I want to accomplish next and who I need to talk to next. But um, there's so much to say for stepping back and saying, bring it back to the person in front of you. Bring it back to the moment in which you are already. And and be, just be. Um, and it's really hard to do that. Um, uh, that's because we're used to measuring our successes by big noticeable things things we can see we we want uh we want that confirmation right now instead of just uh, allowing it to be the to have the con when i give a speech i have the confidence that i am saying something that's going to be meaningful to someone i don't know if it's going to be one person or all 250 who might be sitting out in the audience uh, but it, for one person, it's enough for me, uh, because I don't know how far that's going to go. I, I don't know if it's going to just stick with that one person, or that one person's going to end up writing a book that 50 million people read. I don't know. Uh, and I don't worry about it. I don't need to know. I am confident 
that I am doing uh, what is meaningful uh, in my life. So I don't worry about it. Now, you have four kids, and I'm curious what your children have taught you. <laughs> my children have taught me lots, uh, and, and it's beneficial to have four. Uh, because the key message that I've learned is that no two people are alike. No two people. They come from the same mother and father. And uh, and so genetically, they've got similar genes. But they are so different in their thinking, their expression of their emotions, their desire of what they want to do. Uh, child one is a uh, manager of a bar in Waikiki. Child two is a web and app designer in New York. Child three is a dancer and all over the place whenever he can get a gig. Child four is a high school math teacher. Uh, they're all different. They all took different paths. And I was so happy to see them take, well, uh, they weren't always in agreement with me. Uh, what, uh, my second child wanted to stay in California, but I wouldn't let her. I told them, go far, far from home to go to college. That's going to expand your experience. So they went to college in Hawaii and, and, and Indiana and Pennsylvania and New York. Uh, because I, I didn't want them to stay in California. I didn't stay in California. I didn't want them to stay in California. Uh, their mother grew up in New York. She did not go to college in New York. She went to college in Massachusetts, not far from home, but, well, she went to college in Massachusetts and then and then uh, came to California to go to law school. So, uh, you know, it's they're very different. This is what my children taught me, and I had to learn as a parent to um, expect different from them, uh, I didn't. I didn't pick their direction. Uh, I I told uh, one of my sons. I said um, I, I treated my responsibility as a parent is to 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 put you on a leash uh, so that I can keep you close enough that you don't. Uh, go out and injure yourselves or, or make permanent scars in your life, but give you enough rope for you to discover who you are and, and the world around you and what and what impact you wanted to have on the world. And and his response was, "Well, Dad, I I think you may have given me too much rope." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and he recognized some of the the failures uh, in his life, but. That was I, I saw that as a parent. My job was to to help you discover the the unique person that you are and not to shape you on who I wanted you to be. I want to ask about um your your history of of mentoring in high schools, too, because this is something you've been doing for a while. And it's always been really lovely for me to think about the fact that I am one person in this series of people who you have given attention and support. Uh, how did you get started volunteering in, in, in local high schools? Uh, I got a call from uh, one of the teachers in the high school, Nancy Speaks, who was teaching at Highland High School in Antelope Valley uh, at the time. And she said, I have a student who's interested and participating in the speech contest sponsored by the National Management Association, would you come and, and coach him? Uh, and I certainly I will. And uh, by that time when she had called me, I had already been in Toastmasters, had already been in the World Championship. I was, I was in the World Championship twice, and in 91, I came in second place. So uh, Miss Speaks had already heard about my winning second place in 1991. And that's why she invited me to come and coach this student. And ever since then, every year, 
I've coached students all the way to the point that by the time I saw you uh, in Soar High School, a speech club was a formalized club, and I was the I was the uh, advisor for that club. But uh, it wasn't a, always a formalized club. It was just there's some students who want some coaching. Can you come over and coach them? And that's what I would do. And the fascinating thing is I loved it so much. I I love being with the high school students. I, I, and of course, it, it's quite rewarding to coach someone like you uh, who who is successful in picking up those communication skills and using them, uh, even as you're doing now. Uh, it, it's just rewarding to see that. Uh, and as you said, it, you, you're one of several down the line. And, and to, to, you know, the students that I've had a chance to work with, the our, our lawyers or lawyers-to-be, they're working for corporations like Apple or Microsoft, uh, their, their teachers. Uh, there, there was one young lady that I, that I coached. I wasn't that close to her, but she was in a program that I was uh, working with another group of people in coaching. She now teaches speech communication at the local college here. Uh, so it's just wonderful to... Uh, to see that, to, uh, you know, and, and so a teacher's job and teaching and, and being around long enough to see how the student is carrying that message in life is just rewarding. Uh, the odd thing is, when I had to decide what I wanted to do, uh, leaving Yale, I, I, I actually said, I don't want to be a teacher. But now I, I am so happy that I spent uh, 32 years now uh, working with high school students. It's just so rewarding. Now, you have an exercise with I am statements. Do you think you could um, lead us through that exercise and tell us about your statements of, of being? I developed this idea in connection with pillar number four from Making the Moment Meaningful. Uh, pillar number four is self-definition. And what I recognize as a blind person growing up is if you don't define who you are, other people will. So you should define who you are. And and, and I came up with the I am statement as a way to define. I have to tell you that I did, I did, you know, borrow it from the Bible. Uh, there is a section in the Old Testament where Moses asks in, in his conversation with God, who should I say sent me? And he says, say, I am sent me. And I said, I am. That, that's an interesting way of identifying. I am. And, and so... The I am statements have a specific form. It, it has two parts. Part A, I am blank. And in that blank, you put a noun, not an adjective. Too often, we describe ourselves by adjectives. And, and I say, uh, you should define yourself as a noun. You are a noun. A noun is a person, place, or thing. You are a person. So as a noun, you should define yourself in terms of a noun, not in terms of adjectives. So the first part A, I am blank. Part B, two, T-O, blank. And uh, blank after that is describing what the world gets as a result of your being who you are. Uh, how, the, how the people you interact with benefit as a result of your being who you are. Now, it's up to you to determine, do you want three statements to define who you are, or do you want 30 statements to define who you are? When I came up with my I am statements uh, as, a, as a brainstorming, I came up with 13 statements, but I realized that some of it was repetitious, and I was able to whittle it to eight, 
So here, here are the eight statements to define who I am. I am spirit. To live for the value of what is not physical, tangible, or material. I am love. To connect to others with care, kindness, and support. I am forgiveness. To let go of blame and the pain of offense. I am possibilities to reach beyond the limits of what is into the realm of what can be. I am power to collaborate in making what can be a reality. I am wisdom to discern positivity and expedience. I am gratitude to be responsible for and appreciative of every event of my life. I am excellence, to perform with my best effort everything I do. Those are the eight statements that define who I am and how I use them. First of all, I recited them at the conclusion of every day after I developed those statements until they were committed to memory. Mm. Now, I don't recite them every night now. Frequently, I do. But one of the ways that I use it is as I reflect on my activities of the day, I quote my I am statements to see if there was anything that I did that day that was inconsistent with who I am. And if I found something that was inconsistent, then I knew that's what I had to work on for self-improvement. That's just beautiful. And it, I mean, I'm always uh, struck by how, how, how wonderful it is that you have these things committed to memory. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you know, I, I just told a friend yesterday, if you don't use it, you lose it. And we have our smartphone, which makes it so easy for us to immediately record stuff and we don't have to worry about memorizing it. But we need to keep exercising our memory so that we don't lose it. And, and you know what's so lovely about these I am statements is that they are toward other people. I mean, it, it, they're about defining ourselves in our relationships to other people and the ways in which we can be of service. Um, right. And that's, I think, a prerequisite for having a sense of self that is, what? I don't know what word to use. A, well, obviously a value to others, but I think that's a, a, a successful self has to be oriented toward other people. That, that an honest. Well, that, yeah, not only that, Noah, but uh, as I said, that's that I developed that in, in connection with the fourth pillar. So it's not in the book, Making the Moment Meaningful. I, I developed it after the book was published. But but if you understand those, your I am statements, once you have them fully developed, they assist you with the other three pillars. They assist you in nurturing meaningful relationships, in fulfilling your purpose, in in setting up your your constant growth uh, they they are part of of those three other pillars uh and and that's what's important about making those i am statements nouns and 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 then explaining how the world benefits as a result of your being who you are now, Dana, I, I in our last minute um, together on this program, I, I wanted to ask about what your hopes and intentions are for the near future as you continue to recover. I, I still have some recovery to do. I have another surgery that I'm going to have to go through uh, to, to reconnect my esophagus with my stomach so I can eat again. I haven't eaten food since since May 20. Uh, but 
uh, I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing. No, I'm going to continue sharing ideas, uh, giving presentations when I have an opportunity to do so. I, I'm giving one tomorrow morning, for example, to a to a group, a Toastmasters group in Central California. Uh, but uh, I'm going to continue that. Uh, I I hope to write at least one more book. Uh, but I also want to fully develop uh, a, a, an institution, uh, an organization that I founded uh, several years ago, and it just it's it's languished in in nothingness for a while. It's called Heaven Is Here Life Center, and it it's the notion I'm extending a notion. You know, when I grew up in church, they talked about going to heaven, going to heaven, going to heaven. I'm earning my way to heaven or whatever. Uh, I want to go to heaven. And I came up with this idea that that our responsibility is to make heaven here. Uh, and, and that is to promote love. Uh, in fact, in one of my books, and I don't remember which one, whether it's Making the Moment Meaningful or The Soul's Mirror, I say, uh, I imagined a world in which everyone loved and called it heaven. Hmm. So uh, the idea of promoting love and, and, and helping people to figure out how do we love each other? How do we get along with each other? Uh, I, I think it's, it's going to be even more uh, beneficial or, or needed when you look at what's going on in terms of wars and, and conflicts that are are brewing, uh, we need to figure out how we actually uh, love. And so we should have a regular source to which we can go weekly or daily to say, okay, I need to figure out how to love in this situation. So that's what I hope to do uh, in the next 30 years. <laughs> well, Dana... Thank you so much for coming on to the program. I love you. And um, I also want to take a moment to thank Grace Elliott and Maude Riley and Eddie Lamont and everyone else who's helped you become who you are. We, thank we, you, Noah. It's been a, a pleasure sharing. That was my interview with Dana Lamont. Dana was the first blind undergraduate student at Yale where he studied math. He became a lawyer, then an administrative law judge for the California Department of Social Services. In 1992, he won the Toastmasters International World Championship of Public Speaking. He is also the author of four books, The Soul's Mirror, Reflections on the Fullness of Life, the Excellence Book, 104 Principles for Living and Working, Master the Ceremonies, the MC's Handbook for Excellence, and Making the Moment Meaningful, Creating a Path to Purpose and Fulfillment. The last book in particular has meant much to me. As I visited him in the hospital, I read from that book, and um, I mean, it was really special to read stories from his life written in his own words as he was in that state. And so you can understand that I am just so happy <laughs> that he is here. This is the first episode of my new interview program, Living in Time. Living in Time is broadcast on KZSU Stanford Radio 90.1 FM, Thursdays at 10 a.m., here in the Bay Area. But we're also available online on every major podcast platform. If you have an idea for a future guest, do let me know. Or maybe you have thoughts about today's show that you want to share. You can contact me at nsviven at kzsu.stanford.edu. That's my first initial last name at kzsu.stanford.edu. Next week, I'll be interviewing Paul Robinson, the Richard W. Lyman Professor in the Humanities Emeritus. Professor Robinson is an intellectual historian who has written extensively on the history of psychoanalysis, 
the history of ideas about human sexuality, especially the experience of gays and lesbians, the connection between intellectual history and the history of opera. Professor Robinson is also a very sweet man. But for now, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.